Stephen Cole, uh, he told of an account of Ruth Bell, um, better known to many as Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham. Well, in this account, um, he recalled how she grew up in China. She was the daughter of parents who were missionaries, and she used to pray every night that the Lord would let her be a martyr before the end of the year. As Cole noted, drawing from a work by John Pollock, she wanted bandits to capture and behead her for Jesus' sake. Her sister Rosa used to think, how horrid. So every night when Ruth prayed like that, Rosa would pray, Lord, don't you listen to her. (laughs) Now, I don't know this, but I'd be willing to guess that Rosa thought that Ruth had an unhealthy interest in martyrdom. And it's true that some people can have that. And if some people have such an interest in martyrdom, it can betray a kind of underlying issue that needs to be addressed. But let me also suggest to you that such a prayer can connote a healthy interest in showing Jesus Christ to be that which is most valuable in this life, even more than a person's life. Such a prayer can also connote a healthy disinterest in the temptation to cling to this life. And that's the kind of ingredient, I call your attention to that, because that's the kind of ingredient that will be of the utmost importance to believers when they are facing death or persecution that could lead to death. As a matter of fact, when you look in the book of Revelation, when you see the description of the kind of persecution that will come upon the people of God as Satan is raging on the people of Christ, raging against the people of Christ on the earth and so on, we're told that such ones that overcame him were those that overcame him, that's the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That ingredient is more important than we might realize. And you're not going to stand against the wiles of the enemy or the attacks of persecution if not for the blood of the Lamb. It all begins there. Justification through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another ingredient that can be overlooked. And that's the ingredient of saying, I will not cling to this life. I will not so love it that I will shrink back from the persecution that may come in Jesus' name. And again, your hope and your confidence, as I've told you so many times, is not in you. If it is in you, you will fail. But your confidence is to be in the preserving grace of God. Now, you don't have to wait until a moment like the ones described in Revelation 12 to see a Christian like that. Church history has their share of them. I try to tell you about such ones um, regularly in the teaching that goes on here. But more importantly than that, the Bible speaks of such individuals. And one of those individuals is seen for us in the text of Scripture today, and that is Stephen. Stephen. Stephen, Stephanos in the Greek, he whose name means crown, connoting that of a victor's crown. He was the first follower of Jesus Christ to end his life as one who, if you will, would attain the martyr's crown. And there's so much that we could learn from him, even as we learn about him. So that's where we will be today. We'll jump right into the text, and then through that, we'll create some context. We begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, where we read, And Stephen, full of faith, or as earlier manuscripts render it, full of grace and power, 
did great wonders and signs among the people. So here we have another description of Stephen. Stephen, he's the first among the seven. Who were the seven? Remember the immediate context. There was a dispute that arose in the early church that some of the Hellenistic Christians were thinking that some of their Hellenistic, Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Distribution of what? Distribution of food, maybe clothing, likely alms, resources for those widows to live on. And so the apostles did not dismiss that concern. They addressed the concern, and they told the congregation, choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, men of repute. And Stephen is the first among the seven. Now, you can just overlook this and say, okay, it's a description of Stephen. Let's get ready, and let's just move on. Do not overlook this. He was one that was chosen by the congregation among a congregation that was very large. I mean, we're talking about believers maybe numbering 15,000, 20,000, 25,000, 30,000. And when the people looked out among the people and said, who can we choose that fits this description that the apostles are requiring for those who will oversee the distribution? This guy is the number one draft pick. I say that because he's first on the list. I say that because we have a description of him here. I say that because of what we're told about him. It's as though he is the number one draft pick within the early church. The early church was like, oh, yeah, there's a godly man right there. Don't overlook that. Um, within one chapter of God's word, there is so much that's said about him. By way of implication, go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 3. The apostles gave requirements for the individuals who would be chosen. So you know by way of implication, Stephen was a man of good repute. He was a man of reputation. You know that he was a man perceived to be full of the Holy Spirit and perceived to be full of wisdom. So we know that about him from Acts chapter 6, verse 3. You go to verse 5, and we find out there that he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Think about this man, especially in light of what you're going to read today and what we're going to study, Lord willing, in the days ahead. This man was on the brink of martyrdom shortly in our text, shortly before us. We're going to see that. Yet he was full of faith, trusting in God, trusting in the sovereignty of God, trusting in the work of Christ, trusting that God was in control. And then if God was going to have him die as a martyr before the council, it was okay because God is in control. He was full of faith, full of trusting God, full of believing God's word. You see this man in Acts chapter 7, he's full of the word of God. So it's not surprising that he'd be full of faith. But that word of God that he had in his heart, he didn't just know it intellectually. He knew it sincerely and truly, and he trusted it. He believed it. He was full of faith, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, whereas other people might be full of anger, full of envy, as I told you last week, full of themselves. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and it showed in his life. No wonder why he was full of faith. And then we get to this text. And in this text, we're told that he was full of grace. New King James notes uh, there, and it says in the footnotes that the earlier manuscripts, or NU, um, note that the earlier manuscripts have the word grace in place of faith. So we already know he's full of faith. We see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. I think here the word is karitas. It's a word in the Greek that connotes the favor of God. It connotes kindness. It connotes grace. He was full of grace. This man is the kind of man 
that you and I want to be like. Uh, he's just the kind of person that any Christian would say, I, I see those godly characteristics in him. And whether I'm a man or a woman, whether I'm a boy or a girl, I want to be like Stephen. I know he's an imperfect example, but he's nonetheless a good example of even an imperfect example following the perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ. This man, um, mightily used by God, and he had a very short life. Um, at, at least that's the impression that you get, a short ministry Life. You don't really know much about him other than what you see here, but what you see here is rather potent. And hopefully you'll appreciate Stephen in a way that perhaps you haven't before as we make our way through the text. So first thing we're told here about him is that Stephen was full of grace. And before I unpack that, I do want to say this. Looking ahead, not to give away the story, Stephen will be martyred for his faith in Christ. And if you look at this kind, of, this kind of individual, the kind of man that he is. I want to just suggest to you a principle that the best way to prepare for a Christian death sometime in the future is by living a devoted Christian life right now in the present. See, some Christians so worry, like, what is, it, what is it going to be like when that moment comes? And some people's hearts are failing them for fear about what's even coming upon the earth even now, yet alone what's going to happen in the days ahead. And some people become so fearful, and they're like, what am I going to do in that moment? You trust God for that moment, but you do what you can do now. You look at Stephen, and you say, he was a godly man, and he was prepared for that moment in the future by the way in which he lived in the present. Being full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the scriptures, we're going to see that, full of grace. Best way to prepare for a Christian death at some point in the future, is to live a faithful Christian life right now in the present. Quick pastoral uh, parenthetical note, because I want to just clarify terms here. When I say a faithful Christian life, I don't mean going to church three out of four times a month and then occasionally attending something during the midweek. I'm not being upset, nor am I being mean, but I think the standards of Christian living have been so watered down in American evangelicalism that we say, the Christian life means I check a box that says I'm a Christian, I go to church when I can unless something else more important comes up, and then I try to attend something in a midweek here or there. I try to have my Bible reading time. I try to do this. I try to share Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do not settle for a standard of Christianity that does not meet the biblical standard. When I say the best way to prepare for a Christian death in the future, it means being by God's grace, although you will fail, although you will sin, although you are by no means perfected and you're going to have to regularly confess your sins and failings to the Lord Jesus Christ and to your Father in heaven, nonetheless, a Christian life is one in which the person who has been saved from the wrath to come, they've been saved, wrenched out of the kingdom of darkness, they've been translated into the kingdom of grace, they are consumed with Jesus. They hear Jesus say that unless you deny yourself and come after me and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. They hear Jesus saying that unless you love me more than your father, mother, sister, brother, or even your own life, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. Please, we will fall short. I know that, but don't lower the standards. What happens too often is that the goalposts get changed. And so many will hear me say the best way to prepare for a Christian death in the future is to live a faithful Christian life in the present. They'll say, oh, faithful Christian life. I got that. That means I call myself a Christian. That means I'm not as bad as other worldly people. That means I attend something else at some point in time during the week. Brothers and sisters, the demand of Christ is much more than that. And you don't get to heaven by works, no, but you show your faith through your works. And I just want to remind you, this is a quick pastoral qualifier. I love you. 
I don't want us to fall into that trap of a watered-down version of Christianity that is by no means taught in the Scriptures. And when you read through the Scriptures, you're like, what? There's no, there's no watered-down Christianity here. It's everything. It's all on the line. It's life and death. It's consuming. Well, Stephen, we see here, he was somebody that is described as being full of grace. The language here in the Greek is very strong. He was full of grace. Uh, when Stephen is described as being full of grace, it likely means at least these things. He was full of the working of God's grace. As I told you, that word caritas can connote God's favor. It also connotes kindness. So doubtless, part of what this means is that he was full of the working of God's grace, and there was a graciousness in his demeanor, a graciousness in his way. There was a kind of serenity and a composure about him. He was full of grace. I think one of the greatest witnesses to this, again, not to give away the story, but most of you know where this goes, the end of his life. I mean like the very end, right before he breathed his last. The last words that um, are recorded in Scripture for us to hear Stephen say, the last words that he spoke, he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. In light of being stoned, he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This was a man who was on the receiving end of the gnashing of teeth, hatred of men as they're throwing stones at him. And he's so full of grace that he could look at them and he could pray to the Lord and say, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He was full of grace. Now, let me make uh, a quick second point here, because many of you, like me, um, grew up in Roman Catholicism. And when you hear the words full of grace, doubtless for many of you, like me, you're recalling the words of the Hail Mary that maybe you prayed many times before. Uh, remember the words of that prayer begin with the, the words, Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, sadly, in, in Roman Catholicism, as I've told you before, there are just so many deviations from the Scripture. Right? Whereas the scripture teaches that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Roman Catholicism teaches that you are saved. We study this in our teachings on Roman Catholicism, that you're saved by faith in Christ plus baptism plus the observance of the commandments. That's not my word. Those are words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that if you don't keep holy days of obligation that were established by, for instance, the popes and the papacy, the magisterium, it's a mortal sin on your soul and you cannot get into heaven, for instance, if you don't go to church mass on All Saints Day, November 1st. The Bible does not say if you don't go to Mass on All Saints Day, it's a mortal sin on your soul and you can't get into heaven, but yet Roman Catholicism teaches that. There are many deviations from biblical truth in Roman Catholicism. I don't say that in a mean way. I just say that in an honest way. It's just the truth. Well, one of the deviations concerns Mary. In Roman Catholicism, Luke 1.28, where those words come from, Hail Mary, full of grace, likely not a proper rendering of the verse, more about that in a moment, are used to argue for Mary's sinlessness. Don't take my word for it. Pope Francis wrote, uh, quoting from uh, EWTN.com in a specific article there, Pope Francis wrote, what does full of grace mean? That Mary is filled with the presence of God, goes on to say, there is no room within her for sin. Now, what I want you to understand is that if that were true, if that line of reasoning were accurate, then the same would be said of Stephen. Because see, Stephen is said here to be full of grace. 
If that line of reasoning were true, we'd have to say, well, Stephen has no room for sin within him either. Because Stephen is full of grace. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the language here in Acts 6 is even stronger than the language that's used in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. Stephen was full of grace, but he was not sinless. Mary was somebody who was highly favored. You might even say full of God's grace, but she is not the mother of grace, and Stephen is not the father of grace. A little bit more about this. Furthermore, just so you can know this, apologetically, it's good to know. Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the language there connotes that Mary, remember, this is in a greeting context, right? So when Gabriel sees Mary, he's greeting Mary, and he is essentially identifying her as one who is highly graced or highly favored. The Greek word that's used there connotes that she is one who is on the receiving end of grace. She is one who is full of divine favor. She has been highly graced. Furthermore, the same verb that's used in Luke chapter 1, verse 28 to describe Mary is used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 to speak of all Christians. All Christians are highly favored by God, are highly graced by God. Having been loved by him, context of Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, having been chosen to be his. So hopefully that helps. I want you to know very clearly, according to the word of God, there is only one who is full of grace and the dispenser of grace, meaning in that context that he is without sin. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John describes him as the one who was full of grace and truth. So Jesus was full of grace and Jesus was without sin. And we know that because the scripture teaches us many times in him there was no sin. And we know he's also the dispenser of grace. Think of Paul's greetings to the churches. Grace to you and peace from who? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from Mary and it doesn't come from Stephen. It doesn't come from me. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, back to the text. We're also told that Stephen was full of power. That's not physical strength. Don't think of Stephen as like a New Testament equivalent of Samson, you know, just going around and, you know, lifting things up and so on. No, he was full of spiritual power. And we, that would make sense because he was full of the Holy Spirit. But here we see that he was full of power in the sense that he did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, as I've told you before, when you go through the book of Acts, you can see that signs and wonders are associated very um, explicitly with the ministry of the apostles. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Acts chapter 3, the healing of the man who was lame. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, that God worked miracles through the apostles, which testified to the words that they preached. But I also noted to you when we were going through that, that God did miracles through men like Stephen, and God did miracles through like, ones like Philip and so on that God worked mightily through them. I would say, just as a quick note here, I think in light of the context, I'm speaking about what came before this verse and what comes after, I think we could say that Stephen's working of signs and wonders would be another testament to the authority of the apostles who had laid hands on him. I think that continues a thread of authority that we see in the book of Acts. Remember, Stephen's doing wonders now and he's doing signs, and it's shortly after the apostles had commissioned him and the other seven, uh, the other six. I also think this would be important in light of the fact that the wonders and signs testified to the validity of the message of Christ that he preached and would die for. And furthermore, you might say that it would also add great guilt to the Sanhedrin that would see him killed 
Like this was a man who was not only um, speaking the truth, he was, if you will, doing the truth, doing great good to the people. And yet they're going to kill a man that was used in such a mighty way by God. Um, in Acts 6.8, we read of Stephen doing great signs and wonders among the people. I just want to call your attention to one thing here. I think it's interesting to note. In Acts 6.6, 6, he's appointed to serving tables. So Stephen is, I think, a rebuke to those who would want to do the former in Acts 6.8, but not do the latter in Acts 6.6. 6. As um, Brian Bill noted, quoting uh, D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody had once stated, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do the little things. And I just want to just frame that for you. What Stephen was doing when he was ministering to the widows was by no means a little thing. You want to know how big it was? Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, that whenever you give like a glass of water in his name, or whenever you feed those who are hungry, if you visit those who are sick and so on, whenever you've done these things to the least of these, my brethren, you've done them unto me. So I want to say things that we would even esteem to be little are by no means little. But even the things that we would esteem to be little are to often be precursors to greater responsibility and greater usefulness in the kingdom of God. And Stephen, I think, could be a reminder of that to us. Well, now we're going to see what happens. This narrative begins to unfold. That's a description of Stephen, and now the narrative begins to unfold. And what happens next, uh, many of you are familiar with. Let's work our way through some of the details. Verse 9, Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Okay, so some of you, doubtless, you read that, and you're like, who are the freedmen? And why do they have a synagogue? So synagogues developed maybe during the Babylonian captivity or during the intertestamental period. They were these meeting places where the Jews would gather together. They would hear the scriptures read. They would sing. They would congregate. Sunagoge. It was a gathering together. They didn't have the temple to go to anymore, but they had to continue gathering in worship. So that's where synagogues essentially came from. Well, this is a synagogue of the freedmen. A little bit of a note here, because there's some differences of opinion as to how many synagogues are in view here. But synagogue of the freedmen refers to Jews who had been taken captive. Likely, many commentators know, in 63 um, BC by Pompey, many had been taken captive from Israel, brought to places in the Roman Empire, but then at a later time received their freedom, and either they or their descendants became known as freedmen. Many of them, having such a passion for Jerusalem, would go from the lands in which they were back to Jerusalem to worship, at least during the appointed feasts, and some doubtless stayed there, and there was a synagogue there specifically for these Hellenized Jews. These Jews who were part of the Greco-Roman world, but then would travel back to Jerusalem. They were freedmen. They were people, doubtless, who prized their freedom. We were once in bondage, but now we're free. Maybe their children, their descendants prized that too. Our, our ancestors or our fathers were in bondage, but now we're free. They took great pride, you might say, in that. It was the synagogue of the freedmen. Only reference to that in the scripture. So they had, doubtless, nationalistic pride. Um... Some people wonder whether all of the groups here comprise the synagogue of the freedmen. You look in the New King James, you get that impression, right? Because in parentheses, you see Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. 
So there's a question here. Is the synagogue of the freedmen that's referred to here all of these groups? Or is the synagogue of the freedmen one group? And then you have the two other groups from North Africa. That would be um, those from the Cyrenians and Alexandrians. And then you have the groups from um, Asia Minor, um, Cilicia and Asia. So there's a question there. What I want you to gather is this. These individuals from these places are rising up against Stephen to dispute with him. You see that in the beginning of verse 9, the end of verse 9. They rise up. And you see in light of the end of the verse, they're rising up to debate with him. They want to dispute him. What are they disputing him over? Doubtless they're disputing him over who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah. We'll see more about that as we get into Acts chapter 7. A couple notes about these groups, by the way, that you might find interesting. When you hear the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, maybe some people from the scripture come to your mind. Cyrenians, you might think of Simon of Cyrene, the man who was um, drafted, if you will, forced to carry Jesus' cross. You might think of his sons, Alexander and Rufus, that were doubtless known by the early church because Mark makes mention of them as though his readers just know who they are. When you read about Alexandria, you might think, okay, that's Alexandria, that's Alexandria in Egypt, named after Alexander the Great. It's also where Apollos was from. You'll see more about Apollos, Lord willing, in Acts chapter 18, verse um, 24 through 27. But then, this should catch your eye. The province that might particularly catch your eye is Cilicia. Cilicia. It was in Asia Minor. And if I tell you the capital of Cilicia, you'll probably know where I'm going. A capital, or the capital of that province, was Tarsus. And we know who was from Tarsus, don't we? Saul of Tarsus. And we know who's there holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7, right? Saul of Tarsus. And we know who Saul of Tarsus becomes, don't we? Better known to us as the Apostle Paul. So right here in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, when you hear that these groups are rising up to dispute with Stephen, it's not only the synagogue of the freedmen, maybe comprised of the groups that follow. It's not only Cyrenians, Alexandrians, people from Asia. It's individuals from Cilicia. And I'd be willing to suggest to you that I think the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at this point, is in view. And he's trying to dispute with Stephen. Maybe he was the number one option among those Hellenistic Jews of disputing with Stephen. And he probably brought his A-game. Now, uh, I saw one, one good resource um, that had said that Saul would have been more than capable of disputing with Stephen in matter of religion. But I have, I have to take issue with that. One is Saul of Tarsus is debating here without truth on his side. So I think Saul is part of this group. I think Saul is part of the disputing. I think the context would suggest that. But I don't think Saul of Tarsus without truth on his side is going to win the debate. Furthermore, I think Saul of Tarsus without the Holy Spirit is not the Apostle Paul that we know. And furthermore, we're going to see the scripture very clearly tells us in the next verse that those to whom Stephen was speaking could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Um, I do want to point out an irony to you. One irony, I think, is this. The synagogue was called the synagogue of the what? The freedmen. And as you're going to see, they were not free at all. They may have had some measure of freedom, but they weren't free. They were in bondage to sin. They were in bondage to anger. They were in bondage to wrath. 
they were in bondage. And I think there's a great irony here that they saw themselves as free when in reality they were bound, bound by their sin. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. To which people who read the scriptures say, what? I don't know about that. Did you forget about the Babylonians? Did you forget about the Assyrians, Egyptians? How can you say you will, um, you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let me tell you that one of the great uh, ramifications of believing the gospel is freedom. There's so many that are held captive to one thing or another. Maybe there's somebody in this place, up here, downstairs, I don't know, somebody who's in bondage. Maybe you're in bondage to lying. Maybe you're in bondage to bitterness and hatred. Maybe you're in bondage to sexual immorality. Maybe you're in bondage to trying to please men. Maybe you're in bondage to the love of money. Maybe you're in bondage to gambling. Maybe you're in bondage to one thing or another, but you're enslaved. And I want to tell you today that part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can make you free. That when you come to Christ, you receive, most importantly, the forgiveness of sins. But if you are his disciple, you will be made free indeed. I think how uh, J.C. Ryle put it is great when he said, let us never rest until we have some personal experience of this freedom ourselves. Without it, all other freedom is a worthless privilege. Free speech, free laws, political freedom, commercial freedom, national freedom, all these cannot smooth down a dying pillow or disarm death of its sting or fill our consciences with peace. Nothing can do that but the freedom with which Christ alone bestows. He gives it freely to all who seek it humbly. Then let us never rest until it is our own. Don't be one of these people described here who think of themselves as free when really they're in bondage. The reality is that through Christ you could be free. Free of the wrath of God free from the penalty of sin, and free from slavery to sin. Well, in verse 10, we're told, and they were not able to resist the wisdom by which he spoke. So the language here is pretty strong. Stephen's distractors were not able. Literally, they did not have strength to resist or stand up to the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. In other words... They could not refute what he was saying. He's proving doubtless from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He's answering their refutations. And they can't answer his statements or his refutations of their statements. He is being used mightily by God. He's probably properly appropriating the scriptures. He's using sound reasoning. Clarity of communication is happening and so on. And this kind of thing was in line with what Jesus told his disciples would happen to them in the midst of of persecutors. Remember Jesus said in Luke 21 verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And that's where Stephen's detractors were right here. Now you've seen this in the scriptures, pop quiz. When detractors are being refuted in the scriptures, think of the life of Christ, think of the apostles. 
Do they just kind of like, you know, pick up and go home? Like, you win, I'm going home, let's do this again another day. It so often doesn't work like that. What happens instead is that they resort to other tactics. They resort to threats, they resort to slander, they resort to lying, they resort to persecution, and in some cases they resort to murder. I was thinking about this, and it's, it was reminiscent to me of a uh, Peanuts article that I had read some time ago. It was kind of burned into my mind. This is a Peanuts comic strip where Violet is chasing Charlie Brown, and she's chasing him, and in one frame after another, she's yelling things like, it's no use running. I'll get you. I'll get you, Charlie Brown. Then Charlie Brown tells her in one of the frames, he goes, wait a minute, hold everything. He goes on to say, we can't carry on like this. We have no right to act this way. The world is filled with problems. People hurting other people, people not understanding other people. Now if we as children can't solve what are relatively minor problems, how can we ever expect to dot, dot, dot. And in the next frame, Violet punches him, and you see Charlie Brown kind of tumbling. And in the very last frame of this comic, she's telling another Peanuts character as she's walking away from the scene, she says, I had to hit him quick. He was beginning to make sense. And it makes me think of what we see in the scripture so often. They couldn't refute Stephen. He's making too much sense. He's actually proving doubtless from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So we have to resort to something else. So what do they do first? Well, look what they do. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Secretly induced. They essentially hired, perhaps. Maybe that's the idea here. They put under. That's the idea of this Greek word that's used. As one commentator notes, they, it meant to procure a person to take such a false oath as constituting perjury. Yeah, ESV Study Bible puts it this way. It could connote putting words in someone's mouth or making false suggestions. So they couldn't beat Stephen, so they find some people that they could influence, and they basically put these people under their influence, and they make them say that we've heard Stephen speak words, blasphemous words, against Moses and God. As one minister noted, and I agree with him, I do find it interesting that they put Moses first. Against Moses and God. Well, what do you think that Stephen was saying that they would have construed as blasphemy? He wasn't slandering Moses, right? He wasn't saying, like, Moses was a wicked man that you should have never listened to. That's not what he was saying. So in what way were they perceiving him to slander Moses? I think it would be something like this. The old covenant has come and has served its purpose. But our Lord and Savior instituted the new covenant on the night that he was betrayed. So I am telling you now that you are not saved by law-keeping, nor were you ever saved by law-keeping. You are saved by faith in the Son of God, the Messiah, who has come and died for sinners like us. And I think they would perceive something like that to be blasphemous. You're saying we're not, we're not supposed to climb the law as a ladder? No, the Old Testament never said you were supposed to climb the law as a ladder. Are you, are you saying that the Old Covenant has passed? Yes, the Old Covenant has passed. It was like scaffolding. You don't need the scaffolding once the building has been built. Imagine a building is fully done and you keep the scaffolding up. But what's the point of the scaffolding? The whole purpose of the scaffolding was so that the building would be built. And the old covenant was like the scaffolding to make way for the building, if you will, of the new covenant. And doubtless they perceived it as blasphemous. Maybe he said things like Paul would say, that the law was a shadow of things to come, but the reality is in Christ. And they perceived it to be blasphemous. 
whatever he said, maybe he said that Jesus was the son of God. And then even as hearers who heard Jesus say that accused him as blasphemy, making himself equal with God, maybe they heard Stephen say that, and he said he not only blasphemed Moses, he's blaspheming God by calling Jesus the Son of God and making him equal with God. This was a very serious accusation. You and I might just read it and just say, okay, they're just you know, saying these things about Stephen, that he's blaspheming, and they're just being mean. They weren't just being mean. They were setting him up to be executed. Leviticus 24, verse 16 said, And whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of Yahweh, he shall be put to death. And you know what happens to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. They gather together and they stone him. So they're setting him up right now. This should also remind you of what happened to Jesus. Remember what happened to Jesus, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 59. Uh, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61. So Stephen is walking in the sandals, if you will, of, of his Lord and Savior. A little bit more, look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, they seized him. It's a word that connotes them violently taking him, and they brought him to the council. Again, you should think of what happened to Jesus. Remember, we're told that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 20. So again, people are under the influence of other people. People are under the influence of the crowds. And here, the crowd is being stirred up by these debaters who failed in their debate against Stephen. The same group that had persecuted the apostles, the Sanhedrin, that's the group to whom Stephen is brought. The same group that presided over the kangaroo court that would lead to Jesus' execution. Same group to whom Stephen is brought. Verses 13 and 14. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words, or as older manuscripts note, to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses had delivered to us. So now they're saying, okay, he's not only speaking against Moses, he's not only blaspheming God, but he's speaking against this holy place. He's speaking against the temple. And he's saying that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now, I don't know if Stephen put it in those words. He might have put it in those words because the temple was going to be destroyed and ultimately all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Christ. So he may have been saying in those words, but I also remember that during Jesus' time of being on the cross, people kept accusing him of having said that when he didn't say that. You think of Jesus, when he was on the cross, there were those who were saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Or this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. But Jesus was not speaking of the physical temple. He was speaking of his body when he used that kind of language. John chapter 2, verse 19, and so on. 
So maybe they were just misconstruing um, Stephen's words, even as they misconstrued Jesus' words. But though Jesus did promise that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left standing on another. Whatever the case was, they're setting up Stephen to be executed. Now more about that we'll see, Lord willing, next week. I want us to close by briefly looking at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. There's a lot to say here. First, I want to just ask a question. How did Luke know this? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote, doubtless. I'll tell you my opinion. I think he knew this from Paul. Because don't forget, Luke became a co-laborer with Paul. The two traveled together. Doubtless, much of the content that we have in the book of Acts came as Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hearing much of what he heard from Paul. And you can imagine Paul being there disputing with Stephen. You can imagine Paul being there when Stephen is brought before the council. Whatever his role was or was not, we don't know exactly. But we know he's going to be there holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. So it's not crazy at all to think. I think it's actually probable and likely that he's right there. And he was probably one along with the many in the council that saw Stephen and said, okay, there's something interesting going on here. And think of how interesting this is. Stephen's Stephen's face shone like the face of an angel. They say, well, what does the face of an angel look like? Well, as I heard one minister put it, it's not some sort of chubby, you know, chubby cheeks with like rosy cheeks. If you have that view of an angel from like being in like an arts and crafts store, no, it's not the view of an angel you want to have in your mind. You would think of an angel's face radiating with the glory of God, having been in the presence of God, and then like Moses when he came down from the mountain, having seen the hind parts or the back parts of the Lord and Exodus, and his face shone with the glory of God, so much so he had to have a covering put over his face. I think that's the idea here. It could speak to the composure of Stephen, and doubtless he was composed. It could speak to the serenity of Stephen, and doubtless he was serene. But how appropriate would it be that even as Jesus had promised that when his disciples were persecuted, that the spirit of glory would rest upon them, things that Peter reiterates in his epistle. How appropriate would it be that the one that they said blasphemed Moses was the one who right now was having glory on his face, a shining, the radiance of an angel to some degree or another, the kind of which Moses had when he as a mediator of the old covenant came down from Mount Sinai. And it's as though Stephen is a kind of mediator, if you will, a kind of he's mediating by way of communication. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. But he is communicating new covenant realities in a very fresh way in early church history. And here God is attesting to his authority, to his truthfulness by the face that he had, the face of an angel. Maybe it's the wisdom. Wisdom makes a man's face shine, Ecclesiastes 8.1. I think, I think that's all part of it. But I think there's an irony here. They accused him of blaspheming Moses, and yet here, like Moses, whose face was shining with the radiance of God's glory, after seeing his back as opposed to his face, Stephen here is shining. The spirit of glory is resting upon him. Thomas Constable wrote, Stephen's hearers recalled Moses' shining face. If so... Um, If so, they should have concluded that Stephen was not against Moses, but like Moses. Stephen proceeded to function as an angel, a messenger of God, as well as looking like one by bringing new revelation to his hearers as Moses had. 
The old covenant had come through angelic mediation at Mount Sinai. Now revelation about the new covenant was coming through one who acted like and even looked like an angel. And I agree with Benson when he said what callousness of heart these men must have had to murder a man on whom such visible, God had put such visible glory. I close, there'll be more to say as we get into the text, but I close with this. Stephen's on the brink of martyrdom. And I think he knows that's coming. I think once he heard them start going down the road of blasphemy and then bringing him to the murderous council that he was being brought to, I think he knew that the end was on the horizon. But don't forget who this man was. He was a man full of faith. Don't you think that that means at that moment when he's standing there before the council and his face is showing itself like the face of an angel that he has this serenity? Like knowing, like you may take my life. You're probably going to do that. I'm full of faith. God has me. I'm secure. Christ died for me. I'm going to spend forever in the presence of God. He's composed. And I think for you and I, living in the times in which we live, whether it's the concerns that we might have from day to day or the concerns that you might have tomorrow, I would encourage you that the same Holy Spirit that was inside of Stephen is inside of you. And you can have a face that shines with such glory by the grace of God if you are ever put in a situation like that. Having been full of divine wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And as I told you earlier, I'll tell you again. Whether it's in that kind of context or not, the best way to prepare for a Christian death is to live a committed Christian life. Stephen was found ready by the grace of God in this moment, at least in part due to the kind of life that he lived leading up to this moment. And he is an example for us. Not so that we might look and say, that can never be me, but that we might look and say, no, the Holy Spirit who worked in him can also work in me and help me to shine in whatever way God would have me to shine to be full of faith instead of full of fear, to be full of wisdom instead of full of folly, to be full of the Holy Spirit instead of filled of anger and rage and bitterness and sin and immorality and self. The Holy Spirit could so work in me that I could be full of power, love, and a sound mind. May that be at least one of the takeaways for you this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one that Stephen would go on to proclaim as the just one, the only one who is full of grace and truth in the fullest sense, your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for sending him, and that through you sending him and him ascending to your right hand, the Holy Spirit has come, and that even fallen and frail individuals like us and like Stephen can nonetheless be full of grace and faith and wisdom and the spirit and power. Father, I pray for all of those who are in Christ Jesus in this room, upstairs or downstairs. I pray that by your grace, they would be filled afresh with power from on high and from within. I pray, Father, that you would help all of our countenances to shine for your glory, that you would help us to have a composure and a serenity in the times in which we live, that we might be full of grace, that we might speak words of truth, that we might speak words of wisdom and not of folly, that we might be those who trust you instead of being given over to fear after fear after fear. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would be led by your grace to see the Son who makes captives free. 
Help them not to live in a delusion of freedom when in reality they are in bondage to sin. Help them, Father, to be freed from the bondage of unbelief so as to set their eyes upon Jesus and say, I believe. I believe that he is the Son of God. And I believe he died and rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. And Father, I pray you'd make such ones embrace true freedom in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.